start this morning with uh, a few notes to preface the sermon. Um, first, uh, I want I want to. It would be much better if uh, if we could actually be here for two and a half hours, um, because we can be. Okay, Dale said it, guys. So cancel your lunch plans. Um, because this passage is uh, uh, loaded on a couple of levels, and it's also very long. It's 1,300 words, which my average sermon is somewhere between five and 6,000 words. So that's almost a third of a sermon's length, just to read through the text. So we're not going to do that this morning. We're not going to read through the whole text. Um, and on some level, that's a shame, because there's a lot in the text we're reading next week, and we're going to deal with that next week. There's a lot of that that actually informs what we're talking about this week. So I want, I want to throw that preface out so that one, you spend a lot of time reading through this text. And then two, I just want to say that this is a springboard into a conversation that you probably should be having. Um, we're going we're gonna to ask some tough questions. And I'm going to give you some of the answers to those questions from the scriptures. But um, it's not going to be enough, and you need to dive into the scriptures uh, yourself and, and start to, to chew on this stuff. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention was that um, most of the answers that I'm giving, uh, actually all of them, I'm pulling from scripture itself, um, and they're sort of biblical, theological answers. Um, there are fantastic philosophical answers to this question. Um, I don't have the tools to give those to you, one. And two, if I tried, it would be a mess. Um, so uh, I want to point you to, as you're sort of asking these tough questions, I want to point you to a handful of people in our congregation who are equipped and who, like, speak the language of philosophy and, and read these books for fun. Um, so talk to Tara or uh, Jacob or Tyrone or Joel or Max. These guys think through uh, philosophically and biblically, um, these issues, and they could give you some really great resources to read through or just help you dialogue. So, um, with that said, let's, let's pray together. Father, I, um, I approach you with fear and trembling. I ask that, Lord, you would open our eyes and soften our hearts and teach us about your nature and your character and allow us to understand the meaning of your scriptures. Lord, resolve obstacles that might hinder worship, Lord. Please bless us this morning. Teach your people. Christ's name. Amen. So over the next two weeks, we're going to be reading a difficult passage. Maybe one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. And I want to be clear from the outset, this is a story that's hard to read sometimes. And this passage, right, right here in the center of Samuel, right at the heart of the story of Saul and David, this passage has raised honest questions from honest readers for generations. They are good questions, and they are questions worth asking. But to complicate things, people who hate God and who want to stifle the Christian faith have used this passage and passages like these as weapons of war. Because this passage says things about who God is and about what God is like, it says things that are difficult to hear. This passage is about the nature of God and about the justice of God and about how God relates to sin. And it doesn't pull any punches. The men and women who weaponize this passage do so because they see aspects of God's character that they hate. And so they take this passage and they twist it so that it seems to say things about God that are awful. So we've got a lot of work in front of us, and much of it is the work of undoing those lies. 
We need to read this passage and to understand it. But in order to do so, we've got to address the misunderstanding of this passage that has troubled honest readers for a long time. And then once that misunderstanding is addressed, we'll have a really brilliant opportunity to gaze upon an aspect of God's character that may trouble us at times because we're sinners, but ultimately is lovely and is worthy of worship. So, over the next two weeks, we're going to try and answer two questions that I think this passage raises. First, if God is completely good, how can He command the destruction of men, women, children, and infants? And second, if God is completely wise and completely sovereign, how can He make decisions which He later regrets? So those questions are heavy. And that's a tall order for any one Sunday, so we're going to devote this week to answering that first question, and next week to answering the second. So I want to get started. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 14, verse 47. Okay, read with me. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the, Am- and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan Ishvi and Malchishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahaniam, the daughter of Ahimez. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what... what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So if you're like me, it takes a real show of discipline to steady through this passage step by step without jumping immediately to to the hard questions. Because the answers to these questions mean things about God. And if God is your only hope, then any suggestion that He might be something other than good or something other than wise or something other than powerful should rock you to your core. Now, the reason we're never afraid to ask questions like these is because the Word of God gives good answers to those questions. Because God is good and because God is wise. We're not afraid to ask these questions because these questions have good answers, however hard we have to work to find them. Now, and I know you're eager to ask them, but before we do, I think it's prudent to start from the beginning. This story begins with a summary. A summary of Saul's reign right here in the middle of the story of Saul's kingdom. Now, if you've ever read Kings or Chronicles, you might... Remember that summaries like this happen all the time. What I mean is they happen all the time at the end of a king's life. At the end of his reign. But here we are, right smack dab in the middle. And Saul isn't dead. And his reign isn't over. So why here? Why now? Think back for a moment about what just happened to Saul and the army of Israel. Not long ago, we read that Saul, who was terrified 
by a massive army on the horizon broke the law God gave to Israel. He undermined the atonement. He torpedoed the covenant. In a desperate attempt to manipulate God, Saul tossed aside the one great hope of the people of Israel. And when the prophet of God arrived, he delivered a message. Your kingdom will not continue, for the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. Your kingdom, Saul, is over. And then, just a few paragraphs later, we read that the people of Israel rise up against their fool king. You've gone far enough, Saul. We won't allow you to undermine the work of God any longer, Saul. No more. No more foolishness. No more corruption. God has been the victor today, and you won't do anything to undermine that victory, Saul. In other words, your kingdom is over. Saul. And here we are on the other side of a dark prophecy and on the other side of a righteous revolution, both of which say in not so many words that Saul's reign is over. And if the message wasn't clear enough, we're told once more when we stumble across Saul's obituary right here in the middle of his reign. See, the Scriptures have made something clear here. In a chorus of voices, we're told that Saul may perhaps sit on the throne He may wear a crown, but his reign is over. His is a skeleton of a kingdom without the flesh and bones and blood and breath of God's might and blessing. So this story begins on an ominous note. In a chorus of voices, we're told that Saul is finished. And anything that proceeds from this point is the action of of an illegitimate king. We should expect failure. We should expect disobedience. And everything that follows should have you anticipating the true king of Israel, whose reign will embody the might and glory of God. Make note of that, because next week we're going to spend a lot of time exploring the nature of Saul's rule the driving motivation behind Saul's partial obedience and why Saul's reign stands in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. What happens from this point is that we begin to see behind the curtain. We begin to see the heart of Saul as his kingdom comes to an end. And that character portrait will make you grateful for this obituary. But that's next week. This week, I want to focus exclusively on Samuel's words. Right out of the gate, Samuel introduces himself. Now, I thought this was odd at first, and it gave me pause. But when you think about how frequently Saul has rejected the instructions of God, how frequently he has ignored or disobeyed the law, this sort of introduction makes sense. I'm the prophet of God, and I'm the guy whom the Lord sent to anoint you king. In other words, listen up, Saul. This is important. These instructions are coming directly from the mouth of God. Take heed. Don't waver from them. Because these are the words of God who gave you your throne. So pay attention. And then this is what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Those words are difficult to read. They're heavy. And they ought to be heavy. We're going to spend the bulk of our time asking questions about those words. But I don't think we can properly understand those words without tracing God's command backward. God says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. Now, as a rule, we don't keep reading if we don't recall the reference, right? 
Just as soon as it becomes clear that this passage hinges on our understanding of another passage, we look back and read that one. Because unless you got this book memorized, you need a refresher here. Turn with me briefly to Deuteronomy 25:17. Deuteronomy 25:17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that your Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. When God worked miraculously to free the sons and daughters of Israel from slavery, from the oppression of Egypt, that wasn't the end of their story. They didn't just hop in a Honda Odyssey and road trip up to the promised land. They carried all of their possessions on the backs of their donkeys. They lived in tents and they hiked step by step through a barren wilderness for years. The trek from slavery to freedom was hard. The people were tired and in many ways they were vulnerable. And as they approached the promised land, they had to pass through the territories of the son of Ishmael. Now, many of these nations refused to allow the freed slaves of Israel to pass through their lands. Many of the nations amassed their forces in an act of intimidation to refuse these people. These are men, women, and children lugging their stuff through the desert. They refused to allow them to pass through their territory on the way to somewhere else. And, you know, that's bad enough, but then there was Amalek. The Amalekites didn't even allow the conversation to get that far. When the sons and daughters of Israel were at their most vulnerable, the Amalekites ambushed them like a pack of lions. They picked off the weak. And they attacked vulnerable men, women, and children on every front. And God worked miraculously that day to protect His people. But He also swore that the people of Amalek will face justice. Now, we should also remember that the people of Israel were in covenant with God. God had made promises to them. Promises to keep them safe. To care for them. To protect them and to avenge them. They were in a covenant relationship with God, and that means a lot. But in cases like this, it means something very specific. Let me read to you from the promise God made to Abraham. This is in Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Okay, now, listen to this. I will bless those who bless you, And I will curse those who curse you. I will curse those who curse you. See, one aspect of God's covenant relationship with His people is protection and vengeance. God will honor His people by blessing those who bless them and by cursing those who curse them. And the curse of God is not something to be taken lightly. So when the bloodthirsty Amalekites ambush the weary sons of Abraham, from that point forward, they bear the curse of God because of His covenant love for Israel. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that, your, your, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget... Okay, so now we're ready to read once more the, the words of God to Saul. This is verse 2 of 15. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go 
and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So there's your, ra- there's your background. Justice against the violent and the wicked, those who would prey on the most vulnerable. Covenant faithfulness to protect and avenge the sons of Abraham. And while that doesn't answer some of the core components of our question, it at least situates the instructions given to Saul in their context. Saul has been given instructions to destroy this people for a reason. He and his army are told to enact the judgment of God against a violent and cunning people, a people who took advantage of the most vulnerable. And God's judgment is that the people of Amalek should not be spared, even women, children, and infants. So now we're ready to ask the question, how can a good God command the destruction of men, women, children, and infants? Now what I'm going to do is give you a number of answers to that question. And I'm going to have references related to those answers on the screen up here. Well, it'll get big. Yeah, it's, it's going to get bigger, and we can go back if we need to. But um, I want you to have the opportunity to read these passages. And I have some very helpful articles for anybody who wants to read them. Okay. The first answer is also what I think is the most basic and the most important. God is the author of life. He created everything, and everything belongs to Him. If He chooses to take away life, it is His right. Because all that is has its existence because of Him, and it belongs to Him. That means you and me. It means this building and the car you rode in on. It means our nation and our wealth and the waters of the sea. It means the beasts of the field and the mountains and the trees. God created everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. God tells us that the earth belongs to Him and the beasts of the field belong to Him. And perhaps most important for you and me, Jesus says that the image that we bear is a constant reminder that we belong to God and that we'll be held accountable for how we use His stuff. That is, our breath and our lives, and our abilities, and our everything. We belong to God. I want you to think about this. We would not be, we would not exist if it weren't for God. We are a product of His imagination which He breathed into existence. And that means that we don't get to make demands. When Paul is asking very tough questions about the future of his people, he compares man to clay that is being molded by a potter. The clay pot does not get to make demands of the potter. We have what we have because it's been given. And it is his right, not ours, to decide how much life we get or whether we get it at all. Every day, 360,000 children are born. Mind-blowing. And every day, 151,000 men, women, and children die. God is sovereign over all of this. His will is at work in the giving and in the taking. God chose their length of days. He gives and He takes away. And that's okay because the world belongs to Him. Every man, woman, and child in it lives and breathes because He is giving them life and breath and He has given it to them for a number of days that is limited. He gave, He is sustaining, and He will take away. He has always been doing it and is His will at work to do it. And that is His right because He created us and because we belong to Him. I told you that this was perhaps the most important answer to the question, and I mean that. It's important for you to absorb this for two reasons, at least. First, you've got to get this because it will radically alter how you think about your life and your days. 
Because when you know that you've been given life and that it isn't owed to you, but it is a gift, and when you know that you've only been given a number of days and that you've been given those days for a reason and that you'll be held accountable for how you use those days, when you get that, it will change the way you think about your time. You'll start seeing your length of days as stewardship of someone else's property. And that's the right disposition. And that mentality will change the way you spend your time. It'll encourage you to start spending your time wisely. Second, it's of singular importance that you get this because this is not how the world thinks about life. And you need to know that because you need to be careful not to be deceived. Some things are marginal. This is central to the world's worldview. And it is everywhere. The world says once a person has life, that life is owed to him. Now, what's truly tragic about this perspective isn't just that it's facing in the wrong direction. That it sees only man and not God that it places man at the center of creation. It's not just that. What's truly tragic about this is that the world arbitrarily decides what is and isn't life. And when a person is owed his life and when he isn't. An An unborn child isn't owed anything to the world. You can take life from that child because it isn't owed a thing. That life belongs to another. If a mother would like to stifle that life, whether it's because it's inconvenient or because it would cause economic issues or because of abnormalities or because of timing, it doesn't matter the reason because that baby isn't owed anything. But the world says that once a baby breathes, it's owed its life from that day forward. That life is its right and nobody, not even God, nobody has the right to take that life away. Their life is theirs to do with what they like. If they'd like to end it, it is their choice. If they'd like to waste it, it is their choice. The individual has total sovereignty over their life because it belongs to them. And they can do with it what they will. That's the world's perspective. And when people die, and it doesn't matter if they die after nine days or after nine decades... When people die, you see men and women shaking their fists at the heavens because God took that life away. And mind you, the world doesn't praise God for giving that life in the first place. The world only demands from God that He sustains life and rages against Him when He doesn't. That is not the biblical paradigm. The paradigm in the Scriptures unapologetically defers to God to choose how and when and why people live and die. Because it's all His. Not ours. We we may not, listen, we may not waste it. It is not ours to waste. We may not end it. It is not ours to end. We treat it carefully as stewards because it doesn't belong to us. And should God choose to take it away, that's okay. Because he's wise and he's good, and because we are not. God can give and take away life because he is just and he is wise, and because it belonged to him in the first place. That's the answer to our first question. How can God command the destruction of men, women, children, and infants? Because God is the author of life, and because it is his right to give and take life no matter the circumstances. Now, everything I've just said to you about God's right to determine your length of days is true. But it doesn't even begin to deal with sin. Even in a world without sin, God would be just to begin and end lives as He saw fit, even if sin were not a factor. But it is a factor. And that's the second answer to our question. God is just to end the lives of men because they have inherited the sin of Adam. Every son and daughter of Adam was born into sin. Sin is our nature. 
It is ever-present, seeking to devour those whom presumed to enjoy creation without Creator. The sin nature passed down to all the sons and daughters of Adam is a death sentence. Our sin nature infects our every action and our every word. None is righteous. No, not one. These are the words, words of Paul. And actually, they're the words of a, a psalmter. Psalter? Psalm, psalmist? Psalm, guy who wrote the psalms? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. That is not hyperbole. It is the truth. This is what we are born into. And this is part of the reason we praise God because when Christ rescues us, He strips that nature away. Sorry. We wear His righteousness. Without Christ, we are ever working towards darkness. Every man, woman, and child is bound to rebel against the only good, to rage against the light, to further corrupt the world until all that remains is pain. That's our destiny because that is our nature. And from the moment that Adam and Eve took the fruit, the mercy of God has been on display. God's mercy not to slaughter every man, woman, and child until there were none left. Because the work of man is a work only of darkness and pain and rebellion. The good that is left on this broken world is there because God is at work. And that work is a spectacular display of grace for every generation to see. The the nightmares of this world, murder, rape, human trafficking, and all that is terrible, are caused by men who were born into sin, who bear a nature inclined towards sin, And God is just to end them. Listen, any act of God to end the ever-strengthening resolve of men to twist and corrupt the created order is an act of justice for which we will ever praise our sweet and kind King. And every day that God doesn't end our murderous race is a breathtaking act of mercy. While Jesus was teaching one day, he refers to a tower that had recently fallen and struck 18 people. Now, you and I know because we've had first-hand experience with falling towers and lost lives. You and I know that the impulse of men is to question whether God could possibly be good to allow such a thing to occur. And here, too, men and women must have been asking, how could God have allowed the death of 18 innocent men, women, and children? But not Jesus. Jesus asks a different question, and He turns the whole conversation on its head. Jesus asks, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Christ doesn't despair because of the loss of innocent lives. No, He says to the crowd, you're no better than they. You too are in sin. Repent, because you deserve exactly what they received and more. Do you see the difference? The wrong disposition says, how dare you, God, take those innocent lives? The right disposition says, praise God for His mercy. For I am just as much a sinner as they, and yet He has spared me. We don't take seriously enough the weight and consequences of sin. 
If we did, passages like this one would feel more like a resolution to the problem than the problem itself. Here's what I mean. The problem, the primary problem, isn't the destruction of a corrupt people. The real problem is that sin is wrecking the world. We should feel that acutely. And when we feel that pain, and we see that curse twisting and corrupting and destroying, we should indeed cry out to God. But the substance of our cry should become Lord Jesus and not how dare you. We should lament not merely the loss of lives, but rather the disease that wars against all that is good. And when we see God's judgment, we should praise His work to stifle the corruption of sin. When earth was young, God watched as sin further and further corrupted the hearts of men generation after generation. And there's a moment towards the beginning of the Scriptures when God sees that every man's instinct and intuition, his every thought was violence. So God grieves over man and He decides to start again. This is the story of the flood. That story doesn't usually bother us as much as this one. And I think that's because we don't often think about the implications. In the flood, God kills every man, woman, and child and infant on the planet. And He saves eight people. The human race is drowned in water and He saves eight people. And that is a statement about the gravity of sin. Sin is awful. And it twists and it corrupts. It is murderous and it is wicked. And those who are born into sin will become treacherous. It is an act of mercy to end them before they do so. And that's our second answer to the question. How could God command the destruction of men, women, children, and infants? Because our inherited sin nature is always at work to corrupt and to destroy. Because the sin of man would cover the land in darkness and it would corrupt the people of God. And because God and His justice will not stand by forever as the plague of sin breeds violence in the hearts of men. This sometimes bothers us because there is sin in our hearts, but there will be a day where we look back on that justice and we pray forever and ever. The third answer to that question has to do with the Amalekites themselves. If you look back on the history of God's people, you'll find that Abraham is restricted from settling permanently in the promised land because the inhabitants of the promised land would be given centuries upon centuries of opportunities to repent and turn to God before this sort of wholesale destruction. 400 years pass. The Canaanites were given an additional 400 years to turn to God. Every day beholding His power. Every day recipients of His provision. Every day beholding the miracle of birth and the miracle of life and the miracle of the stars and the miracle of the moon and the miracle of the sun. 400 years. And after 400 years of opportunity... Rather than repenting of their idolatry and turning to the Most High God, who, by the way, had worshipers and priests in their midst, rather than turning to Him in repentance, they chose to rally in an attempt to slaughter God's people. The destruction of the Amalekites was postponed for nearly half a millennia. They were given ample time to repent. They were given many Many, many opportunities to recognize the nature of God and to turn from their sin. And yet they chased after the darkness and sought to destroy the work of God. The Amalekites were known not only for their violence towards the weak and the vulnerable, but also for their sacrifice of infants and children and worship of their gods. These people were wicked and their hearts were full of violence. 
They refused to repent, though given centuries to do so. So when we see God's judgment issued against the Amalekites, you should set that judgment in the context of centuries of mercy. Every day, every year, every decade, every generation for 400 years beheld a display of God's power and His provision and His care and His generosity. Everyone for 400 years, every day for 400 years. In Romans, Paul tells us that men and women are without excuse. The mercy and grace of God is on display for all to see. Listen to these words. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or gave thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the story of the Amalekites and it's our story too. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the story of the nations. Every son and daughter of Adam has been granted a remarkable display of God's nature and His power. The nations have seen Him. I think we all know this, but I think sometimes it's hard to believe. Sometimes when we talk about the nations, there's perhaps maybe more pity issued than the Scriptures would allow. This is true. God has shown Himself. He has made His nature clear. So when we see God working in judgment against the nations, we need to remember the great work of God to reveal Himself and the great mercy of God to be patient and to afford opportunity. And that's the third answer to our question. When we encounter the judgment of God and it bothers us, We must remember that God is always at work giving opportunity for repentance and that God is patient with men. And in this particular case, God had given this people an opportunity to repent for nearly 500 years and instead the Amalekites chose futility and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's another answer that I think is worth considering and that is God's mercy towards His people and the nation's through the destruction of the wicked. God is just for destroying the Amalekites for all the reasons I just mentioned. But that work of destruction happening in this startling way is an act of mercy toward the nations and towards the people of Israel. Because the destruction of the Amalekites is a warning to all who would pursue creation instead of Creator. To all who would forsake and suppress the truth, this is a warning to Israel and this is a warning to the nations. The wages of sin is death. The wrath of God is being poured out and will be poured out on those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. And if you find yourself trembling when you read the destruction of the Amalekites, you're in a good place. Because that's what happens to those who continue in sin. This is a testimony of the futility of sin. And it also is a testimony that God is our only hope. It is a shadow of the judgment to come. And that shadow is a gift to all who would seek comfort in the darkness. It's a spotlight of mercy on those who would run to sin. 
Don't go that way, son of Adam. There is no joy there. There is no hope there, ultimately. There's only wrath for those who would run to the darkness. But there's hope for those who would turn and repent. Even among the pagan nations in Canaan, like Rahab of Jericho, she and her family were spared from the judgment of destruction because they turned in faith to the God of Israel. And they set their hope in His reign. And if you think that's precious, remember that she's in the line of Jesus. The destruction of the Amalekites was a beacon and an appeal. Go back and read the story of Rahab. Why does she turn? Because she sees the judgment coming. She turns because she's like, God is sending our destruction here. And I don't want to die anymore. The destruction of the Amalekites was a beacon and an appeal. It was a warning for the nations and for the people of Israel. And it was a display of mercy and a gracious appeal to repentance. And I think there's one more thought worth mentioning. I think there's indirect evidence. It's not explicit. It's nothing absolutely clear and undeniable. But I think there are a handful of texts that imply that infants and young children who die are among the elect of God. When David's son dies shortly after birth, he says, David says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And we're told in Deuteronomy 1 that the young children of the Israelites do not yet know good and evil. And there's a number of other texts with implications like these. Now, you need to know big asterisk. You need to know that these passages and passages like these were not written to tell us what happens to children and infants when they die. And our passage this morning isn't written for that purpose either. But texts like these may help to understand the answer to that question. But the good news is that although we're not explicitly told what happens to children and infants when they die, we are told explicitly that God is just and that He is good and that He deals justly always in every case. And that is explicit. The nature of God who is just and who is merciful and who is gracious and who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that nature is explicit all throughout the Scriptures. So when we ask tough questions about the lost lives of children and infants, we can rest heavily upon the nature of God with certainty. So we've explored five answers to a tough question. How can a good God command the destruction of women, men, children, and infants? First, because He's the author of life and all that lives belongs to Him. He can give it and take it as He pleases. Second, because of our inherited sin nature, is always working to corrupt and to destroy. God is just to take our lives because continuing in sin is a fate worse than death. Third, because God was patient with the Amalekites and gave them nearly 500 years to repent. Instead, they pursued the darkness relentlessly. Fourth, because God's destruction of the Amalekites is a beacon of mercy for the nations and the people of Israel. It is a warning for those who continue to pursue sin and a shadow of the coming judgment. And finally, when considering the lives of infants and young children, we have great hope in the God who is just, loving, merciful, and kind. So here's what that means for you right now in this moment. First, Praise the God who is the author of life. You live and breathe because He gave you life and breath. 
Second, praise God because you are a recipient of His breathtaking mercy. You deserved death because you have yearned for the darkness and chased after it. But God in His mercy did not vanquish your life, but gave you rich opportunity to run to Christ, who bears the wrath of God on your behalf. Third, praise God for His patience towards the nations. We are alive and we have heard the good news of Christ's rescue because God gave the nations thousands and thousands of years to repent. That is a work of mercy that you and I perhaps may never understand, but of which you and I are direct beneficiaries. And fourth, repent. Repent of your sin. If you are in Christ, wage war against the sin that courts the wrath of God, for we are the nations being warned. And if you're not in Christ, do the same thing. Stop sinning. Run to Jesus. Be warned. This is the end of sin. Stop sinning and run to the throne of grace. We are in desperate need of rescue because wrath is stored up for those who, like me and like you, have chased after the darkness. And when you see the judgment of God on display, where the disposition of the redeemed, which says, but for the grace of God, there go I. Let's sing about that mercy and that grace.